how do we respond to change and to um, disruption of our systems? We're seeing a huge one right now with COVID. You know, everyone's feeling a little less secure about their food. Um, they're worrying about their finances. Um, and when you build an extra resiliency into your life, you are better able to adapt to those changes. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 132 with Kenton Zerbin. Permaculture is one of those words I hear batted around a lot in conjunction with the tiny house movement, but I've never taken the time to learn what it is. Kenton Zerbin is the perfect guest to help explain it. In this conversation, we'll learn that permaculture isn't some technique or life hack. Rather, it's an entire way of thinking, a design philosophy that pairs beautifully with tiny homes. Kenton is a teacher by trade, and he'll also share how he designed his tiny home to survive off-grid in cold Canadian winters. Stick around. But before we get started, did you know that I personally send a tiny house newsletter every week on Tuesdays? It's called Tiny Tuesdays, and it's a weekly email with tiny house news, interviews, photos, and resources. It's free to subscribe, and I even share sneak peeks of things that are coming up, ask for feedback about upcoming podcast guests, and more. It's really the best place to keep a pulse on what I'm doing in the tiny house space and also stay informed of what's going on in the tiny house movement. To sign up, go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter, where you can sign up for the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. And of course, you can unsubscribe at any time. I will never send you spam. And if you ever don't want to receive emails, it's easy to unsubscribe. So again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy next week's Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. All right, I am here with Kenton Zerbin. Kenton is a passionate and professional educator for the tiny house movement and permaculture, a design science for sustainable living. He has taught over 30 tiny house workshops across North America, started a school for permaculture, as a speaker in around the world for government programs, cities, universities, and public events. Kenton lives in an ultra efficient off grid tiny house in northern Alberta, Canada, that he designed and built. He continues to travel the world, teaching people to reduce their footprint, live for less, and get more out of life. Kenton Zerbin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I, there's so, I'm excited about the interview. There's so much I want to ask you about permaculture and tiny houses and how the two intertwine. Uh, but I thought first, maybe you could just start by telling us your backstory of how you got interested in tiny houses and, and what made you kind of want to take the leap from an interested party to uh, a builder and dweller. Yeah, for sure. Well, that, thank you for that. You gave me a solid introduction already, but uh, I can go ahead and expand upon that. So um, I started my career as a teacher and uh, I really believed that education was this, not just a feel good thing, but a, an occupation that I could passionately get behind, you know, training the next generation. But um, when I got to the education system, it got kind of disgruntled and disillusioned with it very quick. I didn't think we were preparing kids for life. And so I had to look for something else to teach. Um, I came across the field of design of permaculture, um, which is all about how do we design humans back into their physical and social world. 
It has lots of different definitions. Uh, we can dive deep into some of that, how it looks for different people. For some, it's you know reverse civilization collapse and the preppers, and for others, it's about our you know obtaining our our optimal uh, positivity. How do we regenerate and be a positive force in this planet? So, anyways, I, I went holy crap! Growing food, building homes, creating community. This is exactly what I want to teach. This is exactly what I think the world needs. This is the curriculum that I was looking for. So um, I went and got trained in it, um, started a club at a high school that I was teaching at, changed some kids' lives. They really, uh, really kind of saw the benefit of it, but I was doing it as a lunch hour club. So I went, you know what? I, I want to have more impact than you know, reaching these small group of kids for 40 minutes once a week. And uh, I went to Australia. My, my contract finished. I went to Australia, did an internship there in permaculture, traveled around for a year. Uh, spending time with other experts, consulting, starting to design and install food systems, home systems, and, and see how different people had set up their systems. Uh, I got to work on earth ships, got to work on straw bell homes, I got to work on yurts, and indeed I did see some tiny homes in my journey. Now, coming back from Australia to Canada, I was excited to start up my own independent business teaching others. Uh, work with schools, work with whoever was looking for this information. But a lot of what I learned in Australia didn't really cross over <laughs> to Canada in terms of going from a subtropical climate to a temperate climate. So I, I decided to go across Canada for a year and repeat that same kind of like life university experience. There's a lot of time, again, woofing, which is a great uh, network of willing workers on organic farms. You can travel around and you can stay with really cool people for free. Uh, by giving them some labor. I did a lot of extra consulting, uh, started doing some extra teaching and jobs, inst installation of edible landscapes, and more working on, on different homes. So at the end of all that, I kind of went, okay, I'm ready to come back home. What kind of home do I want? Uh, I was, had my eyes set on a straw bale house at that time, uh, but I also had really liked the idea of a tiny house because I, didn't, I don't believe in getting into you know, half a million dollars of debt to, to live. I want to not, I don't want to, I want to own my life, not my life to own me. So uh, a tiny house really resonated with me as a stepping stone to whatever kind of lifestyle I wanted to have, uh, rather than paying for a, a massive house and paying mortgage and debt on it, filling it with stuff, you know, and often low quality stuff as a lot of people do because we can afford and paying to heat it. So I, I short circuited all three of those got my house without debt, filled it with high quality, amazing stuff, made sure it was super efficient and uh, keep my bills to under $2,000 a year uh, for everything all in. Um, so anyways, that's, that's a, 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 most of the story. Uh, before I got back home though to Canada to start doing all that, I ended up going to Barbados. As you mentioned in the intro there, they were looking for someone who had my teacher's credentials, done the training I had done in permaculture, and uh, so I ended up going down there with United Nations funds, which was awesome. We got $75,000 to the United Nations. We got government support. Uh, they gave us land and a building. And we ended up training 100 people on the island in permaculture to kind of start reinvigorate their agricultural sector. They import the vast majority of their food uh, and export the vast majority of what they grow in, in the form of sugar and rum and uh, cotton. So... Um, yeah, I came back from that experience and actually still have some connections down in Barbados, but came back home and finally started up my business, uh, started building my off-grid tiny house. I completed that in uh, March, 2016. And 
I've been living in it uh, ever since. And uh, I started teaching a lot of courses on permaculture and edible landscaping, uh, but I also started a course called uh, Alternative Homes just to teach people about different housing models. And uh, it was a hit. People were so excited to learn about other kinds of homes. Uh, but I would probably say half the people who showed up for that workshop were into tiny homes. So I, I made a dedicated tiny home course. Before I knew it, I was being asked to teach in other places across Alberta, then BC, uh, then across Canada. And uh, I've had lots of inquiries to come to the States. So uh, this, this last year, I've been redeveloping the website. I got a brand new website, thetinyhouseworkshop.com. And uh, I now have a tiny house tour scheduled for across North America and uh, an online tiny house course for those who, uh, especially with COVID and everything else, right, or can't come to the in-person ones. They can always go and just take the uh, the online one. Fantastic. That's quite a whirlwind story. And I like that you've really, you know, you put in the time learning personally. And these were things that you were interested in kind of before you then turned around to say, OK, now I'm going to teach this to other people. Uh, I was curious. I'm sure we could fill and you could probably start an entire podcast on permaculture. Um <laughs> I wonder if you could give a couple examples of permaculture projects that, you know, someone might do at their own home. Because I think that like the definition of permaculture, you know, designing people back into their landscapes, like that sounds cool. But like, what does that mean? Like, what are some examples of, of some permaculture projects that, that we could sink our teeth into? Absolutely. So um, permaculture, I think at the end of the day, it can encompass so many things, but it actually can be ridiculously simple. I like explaining to people, often you talk about it at a landscaping level, we work with three big things. There's three fundamental concepts. And the first is look at your exterior world. You know, what are the natural flows of energy, sun, water, wind are the big ones. Uh, and once you know them, you can work with them. Uh, if you're not working with them, you're working against them. That's another important thing. We often say work is a failure of design. So when we're force feeding gardens and landscapes um, to grow food, you know, we're, we're putting extra work in and we don't need to. We can do better design so it can grow itself. So I love using lots of examples uh, of kind of going, for example, uh, there's a technique for growing food around your house called a hugel culture, uh, which is a German compound where it means hilled mound. But essentially, you make a compost pile in the ground and you grow on top of it. So this is a great example of, of good design because you're usually placing this in the landscape relative to the sun and water and wind. You then will place it close to your house, which is going to bring in the second concept, which I hadn't mentioned yet, which was zones. You want to make sure you put things that you're going to interact with frequently closer to get more energy efficiency for your human interactions. And then the last critical concept for landscape design permaculture is needs and yields or uh, functional interconnection. You can put things together for the relationships that they'll have. So in this example of a hugel culture, we place it close to the house for zones, relevant to the wind and the sun sectors, and then for relationships, we're going to put that organic material inside of it, particularly lots of kinds and different sizes, particularly logs. And what that's going to do is those logs are going to break down over 10, 15 years in the cold climate and be constantly fertilizing for your plants at their root zone where they want it. So now you just took out fertilizing out of your growing system. Furthermore, those logs are going to fill with water. So that water, again, if you're trying to pick up a log in the forest, it's heavy, right? It's full of water. Um, so by putting that in the ground, right where your roots are, 
uh, one, you've protected that water from leaving, from evaporation, from the sun and the wind. And uh, furthermore, it's right where the plants want it anyways. So uh, this is just one of many, many techniques uh, that we use at the landscaping level uh, to put food back into our landscapes where it's less work. Um, it makes a lot more sense. Why are we composting in one spot, moving it to another spot, watering those plants to make them live? And, and really, we've just built ourselves in a bunch of work. So by putting the right things together, like I just described, you take a lot of that out. So th there's a food one. There, I think we exactly right. We could do this all day long with different elements for permaculture. But I always say the big three you want to have in your systems are your rain, rain tank. So connect your tiny house or any house uh, with a rainwater harvesting collection system. Have that embedded within your garden system. And uh, you should also have a nutrient cycling system. This again relates to tiny homes because we're often doing composting toilets. And there's definitely ways you can incorporate that into your, your systems of food. You should. Uh, not to say you should necessarily dump it right on your, your tomatoes and lettuce. You're going to have some issues potentially there. Um, but by composting it for one to two years, then using it at fruit trees, it's perfect. Nice. So... In your, in your bio, we mentioned that you are living off-grid in northern Alberta, which um, I'm assuming is quite cold. Um, <laughs> how, you know, how does your rainwater harvesting work there? Or are you doing it? So, and this goes into understanding, again, what does nature throw at you? In northern Alberta, the majority of our rain falls is snow. So I can't collect it very easily and put it into a rain tank. Furthermore, my roof surface is so small, like many other tiny houses, that when I crunch the numbers, it's barely worth my time to try to collect the water off it. Not for um, intensive anyways. You could always stick a, a gutter system on it, but that might affect your max width, as you're more than familiar with, and have that dump into a barrel. I do have a tank beside my house, and I could incorporate that on, but it would affect my max width. And because my roof is so small and the snow, it falls as snow, I actually don't rain collect off my tiny roof. Uh, but I do have water trucked in. I'm in the middle of a farmer's field. And when the water truck does come in, you know, I'm a drop in his, his, his hall. So I get him to fill up my extra container outside when he fills up my, my drinking water. I've got about 2,000 liters of water stored inside the house. Uh, and I have 1,000 liters outside the house for, for gardening. That kind of roundabout ask you, wow. answers your question, did Yeah, no, that's, I'm, I'm just like, I'm so curious. Well, first of all, I just want to say, like, where did you build in that water storage? That sounds like it would be a fairly large tank and also pretty heavy. Yes. Yes to both. Um, uh, so I designed it into the couch. So I've got about 600 liters inside the couch. Uh, the couch is, is storage for water, storage behind the cushions, and storage actually at the front face to get that front angle so your feet can get closer to the couch. So there's three storage compartments um, kind of built into the tank, into the couch. The, other, the rest of the water, some other almost 1,300 liters of water, is in the kitchen. I designed the same way people would design their house around a pool table. <laughs> I moved that tank into that house when I was still framing. Uh, and then we built the house around that. So that was, um, that, that is the majority of the water. And indeed, it adds a lot of weight. Actually, before I talk more about the weight, let's tie in how we're talking about permaculture. Yes. I said needs and yields, how you connect things together matters uh, for the relationships they have. 
Well, when you put all that water inside your house, it becomes part of your heating system. When you heat your house up, it holds temperature. So from day to night, you have more regulation. It's what we call thermal mass. So when you're designing a house, you can do the same kind of this, you know, intelligent designing of things together in a landscape as you do inside a house. Your windows are a good example of this with the sun and with awnings. You know, that allows you to go past the solar-ish or try to. Then what materials you use inside the house will determine how efficient it is. Not only just the insulation, but things like thermal mass, whether that's, you know, steel, metal, stone, concrete, brick, water. Water is the best one for a tiny house to use because we don't want to move with much weight. So when I, I move my house, I drain all the water out. And of course, it's not so heavy then, I don't blow my axles out. But when I, I park in spot, I actually have four connection points to the ground to distribute the weight from all that water and the entire house to the ground. Smart. So you're, you're taking the house off the, off the springs and just transferring that weight right through the steel frame into, into the ground. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. How, how do you heat your house? <laughs> so I heat my house with three different methods. And this actually goes into a whole other side topic. So we're talking about efficiency. We're talking about designing humans into their landscape. But a huge part of that is resiliency. How do we respond to change and to um, disruption of our systems? We're seeing a huge one right now with COVID. You know, everyone's feeling a little less secure about their food. Um, they're worrying about their finances. Um, and when you build an extra resiliency into your life, you are better able to adapt to those changes. And so when you have one way to heat your house, you're not resilient. As soon as the propane stops, you're not having a house. That um, as soon as your electricity stops coming in, you know, you did. As soon as your water starts coming in. So homes in today are often built like intensive care patients in hospitals. It's a very grim analogy, but they have lines going in and lines going out. And if one of those lines stops, you don't have a house anymore, um, which is I think a good feedback for us to, to respond to that and, and say, well, how do I back those systems? So I did that with all of my systems. I've got the two tanks for water, right? So if one tank goes dry, it's a feedback for me to go get the other one filled. I never have ever run out of water and been like, oh crap, I have to wait. Um, I've got three ways to heat the house. I've got a wood stove, cubic mini wood stove. Uh, and by the way, <laughs> talking about efficiency in that water we said, we talked about, I have a fireproof countertop surface. I removed the heat shield underneath the wood stove. So the heat from the wood stove hits the countertop and actually gently warms the 1300 liters of water underneath. It actually, again, goes back to creating a bunch of hot air when I have a wood stove on. I have a, it heats up the water instead and my, my heat lasts longer into the night instead of getting a bunch of hot air at my ceiling. So I've got the, the wood stove in the corner in the kitchen. That's my, my first one, but if I'm lazy, I still have a combi boiler. I have a Navian combi boiler, which does space heating and does my water heating. So two appliances in one. It's a pricey unit, but because it's got like 98% efficiency of propane burn, for me, it was almost a no brainer because I wanted to have that low environmental impact, but that I could fit my instant hot water heater and my space heating in one appliance was also great for a space saving for um, interesting. I, I hadn't, I just Googled that as you were talking. And so this is now connecting the dots for me. Cause I noticed in the photo that I saw of your tiny house, I think just recently on Instagram, I noticed that there was a radiator mm. down a, a baseboard. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, huh, 
I, <laughs> you don't usually see tiny houses with a hot water baseboard, but I'm assuming that's, that's what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So and this is nice. the part that most people almost scoff out of. I can't believe I did this is the combi boiler heats up a fluid and you could use that for in-floor heating, but I'm a really tall guy. So I didn't want to sacrifice any of my max height on my, my house. So what I did is I put it into baseboard heaters and a towel rack. So I have heated towels in my off-grid tiny house in the middle of the farmer's field. <laughs> um, and then I actually put my clothes uh, rolled up in shelves uh, behind that wall surface because the towel rack is hanging on the interior bathroom wall. And then I don't need insulation in that wall because the other side of it's the living room. So by putting my clothes in that wall, I actually have heated clothes as well. <laughs> um, but that's that's my backup system if i'm ever not home if i'm ever uh teaching my tiny house courses or permaculture courses across north america i don't have to worry i've got a, a wi-fi set up and i actually get notifications to my phone if the moisture levels get too high in the house if temperatures drop if something's going wrong in the house and i've got a, a the farmer i live at he's got a key to the house and he can go over and check on it if there was ever any issue um, but yeah, those are the two main ways I heat my house. I did design it passive solar as well. Um, I've got uh, all very high efficiency windows and a lot of them oriented towards the south, uh, very little less on the west and some on the east. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's a huge source of heat for me as well. Very nice. Now, um, I feel like we're just moving through the systems, but it's, it's fascinating to hear how you set it up and just how thoughtful you were about it. Um, Let's talk electricity. Um, okay. I'm going to make the assumption that you're using some solar panels to generate electricity, but um, tell me more. Okay, here it goes. Uh, so I've got a three kilowatt solar system. Um, I am a huge fan of solar, and, but I think a lot of people are, are misinformed about the lifestyle it has and the cost. And this is why you'll see many professional tiny house builders build utility quarters for solar systems, but not put them on is they jack the cost of a tiny house up quite a bunch. And most people are expecting it to cost less. Um, or those people go, oh, it costs so much. I'll just get less of it. And these are the people who fail. Unless they're hardcore off-gridders, you do not want to compromise uh, your utility systems. Because what will end up happening is you'll overuse it. You'll leave something on by accident. You'll kill your batteries. You'll need to replace them. And now you're in for extra cost and headache and you quit going off-grid and maybe even quit tiny house living if you're going to be doing off-grid and tiny at the same time. And many, many of us do, obviously, for that portability option. So there's a whole lot to say about how to calculate this. I go over this in depth in the, in the course in terms of like, look at your lifestyle, calculate that, look at your local terrain and going, how much solar gain can I get? Okay, that tells me how much I can capture. Now you know how much you have to put on the roof or on your house. I've got on my wall and on my roof. And then then you have a battery bank that holds that power for when you need it. So I've got a three kilowatt solar system and I have eight batteries at almost 800, well, let's see, eight, 640 pounds that sit on the tongue of the trailer. And again, what's cool about that, again, just go back to multifunctioning is the batteries act like a ballast. One of the things that happens when you're hauling is, yeah, you want to make sure you have the weight, weight distribution so your tiny house doesn't have an accident on the highway. And one way you can do that is by adding weight to one end of the house or the other once you start moving. So by having those, those batteries there, I, I use them the same way that people use sand on a hot air balloon <laughs> to go up or down. Um, and I can move them out and put them back in the towing vehicle. 
So yeah, those are um, those solar panel system. I did something very unique. I hadn't seen anyone do a uh, system quite like this. Basically, I wanted to have um, my max height be the roof line, not anything else. So my 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 blue pipe from my wood stove is removable, so it stays below thirteen six. And my solar panels actually fold down in a double pivot system so they flush with the roof lower than the peak. When I set up in location, I can pivot them so they extend out over the highest point of the roof and then pivot up so they act like an awning. And you think about this, again, needs and yields, the same way that you, know, you put the wood in the ground for the, for, the, for the hugelkultur and you put your compost where your plants need it. Your windows can yield heat but they can also, sometimes you don't want them to. Well, your solar panels, they need sun and they yield shade. So put your solar panels as an awning means you win both ways. Now you get your shade, you're not overheating your house and you're converting that heat instead into your electrical energy for yourself. Cool. So I'm getting, I'm like really getting the sense that permaculture is not it's not a specific technique, but it's a way, it's a philosophy and a way of design and a way of thinking. Exactly. It's exactly, it's exactly that. It's, it's really, I've heard so many definitions for it. I, I kind of used the definition earlier of designing our humans back into our physical social world. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to everything I'm describing, right? You need, you need power. We need heat. We need food. How do we design ourselves into that and have those things as less work as possible and efficiently and resiliently? Uh, how, we do, how do we design all that? But you're quite right in the state as a way of thinking. Many people will apply what they learn in permaculture to business. In the same way we're looking at a solar panel, a window, or a plant, water, and a log, you can look at people and go say, well, this person yields this, this person needs this. And now you're creating community and you could be creating a business. And all you're doing is you're looking for efficiency and resiliency and plugging things together so they're stronger and better together, which I think is the inspiring part. You know, I think a lot of people feel very disconnected. And our world today is, is, is insane, really. We have more people than ever before. And we're more dense than ever before. But people feel so alone and so disconnected. And a lot has to do with us de-skilling ourselves where we don't understand our potential, how we can use our hands and our brains uh, and connect with others and our physical world. And as soon as you get some of those skills back and that way of thinking, you feel like you belong. You feel valuable. You feel interconnected. And, and when you connect with other people in that way, that's a feel-good feeling. That's, that's true community, real true community. Not, not sharing an interest, not sharing a location, sharing the meeting of each other's needs together so that you're all happier and healthier and better together. That's true community. Nice. Today's episode is sponsored by Precision Temp. Let's face it, most tiny house dwellers want their homes to be small, but not uncomfortable. That means reliable, unlimited hot water. Precision Temp's propane-fired hot water heaters reliably provide unlimited hot water, and they're specifically designed with tiny homes in mind. In fact, the NSP 550 model was installed in my own tiny home, and the reason I chose it was because it did not require a large hole in the side of my home like other RV hot water heaters. Instead, it mounts discreetly through the floor of the tiny house and works quietly and reliably. With their patented Very Flame technology, 
These are the only gas-fired tankless water heaters approved by RVIA and are ANS certified. Features such as cold weather and wind protection, precise electronic temperature control, and onboard diagnostics are standard. With higher efficiency and 55,000 BTUs of power, these units produce far more hot water than traditional water heaters. And since they don't come on unless you want hot water or to protect against freezing, you may find that you use as little as half the propane or natural gas as before. So go ahead and take that long, hot shower. Precision Temp is offering listeners of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast $100 off plus free shipping using the coupon code THLP. Head over to precisiontemp.com and use the coupon code THLP for $100 off any order plus free shipping. That website again is precisiontemp.com, coupon code THLP. Thank you so much to Precision Temp for sponsoring our show. How are you doing gardening and, and food production um, in your current setup? And of course, I'm making, I'm making uh, assumptions, but I, I, just yeah, knowing yeah. you for this long, I, I have the feeling that you're doing some gardening. I am doing some. And, and so I don't own the land that I'm on technically. Like I was able to build my house um, without debt. And so I, you know, I'm in my 30s and I live uh, debt-free. Um, but that didn't, mean, that didn't mean I didn't buy land up the get-go. So a, a tiny house is, in terms of strategy, um, but tiny house is a stepping stone for me as well in the sense that I could build a house, not be in debt, save up money, buy land, move tiny house onto land, right? Now, using the money that I saved up, I bought that land. And then I could save up again for a forever house and keep the tiny house for the various reasons I'd want it, whether that's my office, whether that's a guest suite, whether that's rental, and so on. So I haven't put, this kind of gets to answer your questions, I haven't put a terrible amount of energy into the land I'm on. I'm on uh, an organic wheat farm, so it's gorgeous. I've got wheat all around me and horses for neighbors, uh, so I really can't complain. Um, but around the house immediately, I only have two square foot garden beds, uh, which just pump out a little bit of food. And depending on my travel, I'll often throw stuff in there that's really easy. I got some chives, I got some strawberries. <laughs> but I'm around and I know I'm going to be there long enough, I'll throw in lettuce and stuff. It's just, just to supplement a little bit of my diet. I've got a raspberry trellis system. Uh, and I've started to put in a few fruit trees, but again, because I'm not owning that land, I've kind of held off from putting too, too much in. The other side of what I do, I've got my, almost my hands in too many pies because of my skill sets, but I end up designing edible landscapes for others um, and, and helping them see that potential. And one of the ones I get the most excited about is community projects. So uh, I've done it for two schools now. Uh, there's two spots in the, the closest city to me, St. Albert. And uh, what's awesome about those is those are community sites. So rather than saying, oh, I'm just going to grow food for me, and a lot of people know this, it's a lot of work. It can be. Is I'm helping people design less work, abundant systems that we communally get to enjoy, communally do the work on. And so I did the designs for them. I led the community to install them in these days called blitzes, where we invite the community out, we put shovels in their hands, we teach them about food, and we all do the labor together. And it's like an old-fashioned barn raising. Instead of raising a barn, though, we're going to make an edible landscape that we all get to enjoy together. And we short-circuit, you know, putting thousands of dollars in some professional landscaper's hands, and everyone gets a plus. They get the learning, they get community, they get food, and uh, the projects are able to actually be done on a shoestring budget, which a lot of community projects don't have tons of money. 
So I also get my food uh, from those places when I wish. There's two of them within 15 minute drive of me that I've helped install now. So I can go and pick berries uh, at those locations or other people get the berries. So yeah, I, I, I tend to, uh, to, to not put too much energy into food because in a way I'm doing so much of it all the time with other people. It's kind of like how a home builder or a landscaper, sometimes they come back to their house and <laughs> they're not looking to build, a, <laughs> build more houses and do more landscaping at the end of the day. So I, I tend to use my tiny house as a way to put my energy elsewhere. So I, I get to work now more with what I want to do. And that's often in community and, and further afield than my own yard, which is, uh, I think, where I think we need a lot of work done. The way that you've kind of described your, your home and your lifestyle, I think, would be a dream for, for many people listening, not necessarily the cold climate, but just the cool <laughs> features in your house, the, the unique design that was kind of made for you. And I'm curious if you'd mind sharing, you know, what, what your house cost you to build, just because I think it's helpful mm. for people to, to kind of hear this and say, okay, what does something like this cost? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this gets, this is a big topic and I, you know, there's lots to say on it. Um, again, a lot of people have this sometimes illusion, a tiny house can cost to $10,000. And I mean, I've seen it done, but often when you see that online, it's clickbait, you know, they're like, Ooh, I have got $10,000 or I can get $10,000, but most trailers, a good foundation to your trailer can cost you 10,000. Maybe that's a, maybe a little less for Americans because the money exchange or how that works. But, um, I always tell people that just to kind of get out of that, that expectation. To add on to that, uh, when we talk about relative cost, usually half your cost will go to labor if you're paying for it. So this is why I, I love teaching people that, about the reality of it so that people can know when they go looking for a pro builder what they can expect to cost. They'll take my course, for example, and they will be that much more informed to pick a builder, have an educated discussion with them, and they've already done all the work. They know what they want. Uh, and they're being very realistic, not idealistic in, in approaching a professional tiny house company. Uh, but many people who come to the course are the DIYers. And they're the ones who are realizing that, yeah, half that cost of a house is the labor. And so, heck, I, I can choose to put $20,000 in and I put $20,000 of labor and I got a house for forty. Or someone will put in $40,000 of their own material cost and they'll put $40,000 of labor in. And that's closer to what I did. So my house, sorry, actually, that's a lie. I meant to double that number. I put $80,000 into my house in terms of material costs and some additional labor. But the house, if I was to try to sell it or remake it and like a professional company sell it, it I couldn't do anything less than 120 and I probably wouldn't be making much profit. And that's just because like, again, go back to utility systems here and this ground in reality. I have a $10,000 trailer. I have a $30,000 utility system because all the systems are backed up and everything's high efficiency. Now, some people look at that and they go, oh, yeah, you, you overdid it, Kent, and you missed the point. You're supposed to be living minimally. And I am. <laughs> Where it, it comes down to priorities is what's important. So I'm a teacher of sustainable living, and I wanted a house that modeled that. Yeah, that means I didn't use you know, cheap insulation. And I got R8 triple you know, windows. that cost six grand for all the windows. You know, I could have scavenged. I could have gotten less. But I live in northern Canada. So I get minus 39 degrees Celsius, which is crazy cold. 
But because I built my house the way I did, I spent $260 for heating for the whole year. And that includes my cooking and my water heating. That's fantastic. Yeah. Right. But, and so I save money over time because I put that extra money into my systems. And I think that's important. I think we need to stop doing quick fixes. We need to stop using cheap materials. And we should use the strengths of the tiny house industry to get higher quality, to actually take accountability for our lives. So the ground that we sit on, we take up less land. That goes more to creatures. It goes more to the landscape itself and letting it be what it can be. That means we can afford higher quality materials that have more ethics behind them, less chemicals, more efficiency. And then we have less of a footprint in the long term of the life of this house. Right. Not to mention that, you know, that that $80,000 that you put into materials costs could have been a down payment on a, you know, four or $500,000 house, but you'd be paying for that for the next 30 years. And, you know, forget having your own business and, you know, how that all goes. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you, that's enabled a lifestyle for you that, that isn't achievable otherwise, or without a trust fund, not achievable. 100%. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so I want to just reiterate something, though, because again, I've, I've, I've talked a lot about my systems, and I really don't want people to think they have to do what I did. You're hearing who I am. And I think what's important is for people to understand who are they and what do they want. The tiny house, rather than living for your house, how can your house help you live? I think that's the biggest strength of the tiny house industry, is that we can now choose how we want to live our lives. For some, it's they want to travel, right? For others, they want to live super minimalistically. For others, they want to look after their footprint. For others, they want income and they can use it as a guest suite in the backyard and have it on Airbnb. There's just so many ways it can be used, but you have to go custom, in my opinion. You can go with a pro builder by all means, but you're going to go through a custom process with them. But I always tell people like, know thyself first and then um, do a lot of research and take something like a course so that you can kind of get grounded before you even start thinking you know what you want. So that you get your house that you actually need and want. And because there's obviously so much to know besides the legalities, besides the space saving, there's just good design as I, you, we've been talking about it in terms of functional, mm-hmm. but there's good design for a person. Yeah. So at some point in your bio or somewhere that I, I read, or you mentioned that you, you do these edible landscapes and I know the, the movable tiny house is a little tricky, as you've mentioned, like you don't own the land, you don't want to put too much in to that. What kinds of things could people maybe grow in or on their tiny house? Like, have you, have you explored that at all? Uh, I actually, uh, with the whole COVID thing, um, one of the things I thought was like, oh, how cool would that be to build a little extra winter greens in? So uh, I did actually build two extra shelves into the kitchen got some grow lights and I'm doing some microgreens. So that's a great, that's a great solution for people looking to supplement their diet. Great way to get some nutrient density, not take up much space. You can do these in simple trays, with a simple grow light or two. Um, and you can be, you know, complementing your salads or even making up a salad or two, uh, depending how big you make it, how much. You so microgreens are a great way because space, right? Sprouts, another good way. Uh, again, it doesn't take much space to store a bunch of seeds. And then constantly be sprouting some in some jars. Uh, there's a few different ways to use your sprouts. And uh, other than those two, I mean, you can always put, you know, your different things inside house, but it's just space saving, right? So to start going, oh, I'm going to put a, you know, uh, some more food and more space and pots and all that. You're just, just you 
you're not going to have much already, right? So microgreens and sprouts are a great way to grow inside the house. In terms of on the house, I have seen some pretty cool setups where people have gone on the roof and designed that in. And again, there's just so many cool ideas. If you can think of it, a tiny houser has done it. <laughs> we have that limited space, right? So we, uh, we just love to get creative. So I have seen some grow ups on top of roofs. Uh, a lot of extra design to that. And there's lots of considerations that go in though. So I don't, not quick to suggest that to people unless they're really uh, intent about it. Sure. Yeah. I think that, you know, you think of a tiny house usually doesn't have a flat roof, uh, which makes it difficult, but I'm thinking maybe like a schoolie or a van build, you know, you, you might have a, a metal flat, you know, flat top roof where you could do something like a movable garden, but. <laughs> I remember though, too, uh, you know, what I was saying earlier about like work is a failure of design. We love engineering cool systems, but uh, often when we grow in the ground, that's best for numerous reasons. So if you can do so, I, I get it. Winter times, colder times and ease of convenience do that as well. Uh, but there are so many solutions for growing food in the ground where it's resilient, efficient, and it's growing as it wants to. Again, kind of work with nature. Nature doesn't really want to grow on the grow on the roof very much, but if 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 you want to be moving it around with you and and uh, you have a deck up there anyways, like why wouldn't you want to have some some uh, something nice to look at and pick at while you're laying on a lounge chair on the roof or something? <laughs> yeah. So, I actually just earlier today interviewed um, this guy Dan Fitzpatrick, who's the like president of the American or the Tiny House Industry Association or tiny home industry association here in the States. And he works on, mm. you know, legal advocacy for tiny homes. I'm curious, um, you know, what, what are, what is the current legality in Canada? And, you know, are you kind of flying under the radar personally or what, what's your legal situation in terms of living in a tiny house? Yeah. I mean, this is again, such a big topic and it's a, a good one for people to get real about. So I always tell people, Stop calling it a tiny house. I mean, call it a tiny house. When you're going to look for permission and you want to get something legally, you don't call it a tiny house. There's, there's very few places that recognize that word. You have to find the other building codes that make sense and work with them. And that's fine because they can still look exactly the same. So the big three are RV, park model, manufactured home. There is options to go permanent, and many of us want it, but because permanent is so discriminatory and so specific state to state, province to province, we like to lean on the other three as a movement because it's national wide and there's zoning implications locally for that national code. This is all old news to you, I'm sure, but <laughs> at the same point, I think it's important to stress that to listeners right now because I think this is one of the most commonly asked questions. You always want to know about it, and it's Good to just be straight out the gate and say, well, here's your options. And they each have pros and cons. So if you want the wheels, well, you're going not permanent. You're going with the other three. And they can be built on wheels, but they all have specific strengths and weaknesses to it. Like RV, no problem. Take whoever you want. It's built to go on the road everywhere. But there's discrimination against RVs. So I'd say that's probably the strongest way that most tiny houses go. You look at all the pro builders, RVIA certified builders, and uh, the Canadian certified building code uh, builders, and both of them are focusing on 
RV because it's the easiest one and everyone wants the wheels from the shows and the portability and just to get their tiny house. That is the easiest way to get it. If you're looking to get uh, something that allows you different strengths and different cons, the park model and manufactured homes now come in. And park models, though, are typically not supposed to be lived in year-round all the same. And manufactured homes get you cl the closest thing you can get to permanent and still have it built somewhere else, built on a trailer frame, built with wheels. And normally when they drop it off, they take the wheels off. But you can actually pay them, keep the wheels, get your permanent attachment to ground, which you need to if you're going to place this legally within your municipality, your city, or your area. And then if you ever need to move, you can cut your connection, put the wheels back on, and drive away. You're just going to need to get recertified and reattach the ground wherever you're going if you're going to be legal as a manufactured home at where you're going to end up parking again. So, and that's, that's just scratching the surface here in terms of pros and cons and this, these main options. Now, myself, I actually went the RV route just because, uh, again, it was the easiest way to go uh, at that point in time. If I was to make a Mach 2 version of my house, I can see now, like many tiny houses, we go on wheels, we, we, we then move it once, and it's such a stressful occasion to move your house that you're not something you're doing all the time. I, I'd be tempted to go the manufactured home route for a second version of my house because I'm not moving it around often. I'm carrying all that water. I've got all these solar panels that fold up and down. I've got all this weight. It's worth all this money. Um, I've only moved it a couple times uh, since 2016. And some of that was just for like showing it off at like home and garden shows and stuff. Um, so yeah, there you go. That, that gives you the answer in terms of how, what route I went. And for the listeners, there's your options. And just know that each of those options have their pros and cons. I usually spend like 90 minutes in the online course and the in-person workshop going over this because it's good for people to kind of really consider these and go this one, maybe this one over this one, or be informed with the pro builders because often those pro builders, by the way, they can build all three. They're usually certified as a facility to build any one of those three building codes I mentioned, manufactured park model or RV. And they go RV, and that's what a lot of their blueprint process goes. But you can pay them to submit blueprints for your park model tiny house that looks the exact same as your RV one. It's just built to a different building code. Um, so again, you can use the Pro Builder. You can, there, is, there is few, but some DIY options to still get those options legally. And each has their pros and cons. Got it. Well, since we're on the topic of, of the workshops, um... Why don't you talk a little bit about um, your your in person workshops and like what happens at them and when they're happening? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I've got them scheduled across Canada and the states right now. Um, starts in Edmonton, closest city to me, in September, and uh, I then go to Newfoundland and Toronto uh, in September and October, Calgary, Vernon, uh, and Vancouver. So. Kind of go to one side of Canada and then come back and go the other way. I planned it around my brother's wedding, actually. <laughs> so I have to come back. Um, and then I'm going to go do Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles in one tour as an extension of going to Vernon and Vancouver. So I'm actually going to drive, maybe get a teardrop trailer, the tiniest of tiny homes, uh, and go for, a, <laughs> go for a tour. Um, so that's the one scheduled now. I had others, but because of COVID, I, I set them back. I will be doing more, of course. But just kind of one step at a time right now with the economics and the world being what it is. 
Um, the dates for all those are all at the website, um, atinyhouseworkshop.com. Now, the in-person one and the online one are very similar in structure. There's a little more content on the online one because I'm continually addling the videos. But here's the benefit of getting the in-person one is you get access to all the online videos anyway after the course is done as you're kind of like, rather than scrambling to take notes because I talk so fast and I've got so much information to give, I just say, here's the videos, guys. And uh, people who take the in-person also get the online. Um, the online is cheaper, obviously, but there's still a lot of hard costs that go into it. And it's actually more content and I'm continually adding to it to get more value for people. So uh, that's again, also at atinyhouseworkshop.com. The terms of the structure of how they flow, I'll describe the in-person one first and then just tell the slight differences to the online one. So the in-person workshop, I, I love doing it. Like my thing is in-person. Like I love that right now, you and I are having an audio thing, but I'm seeing your face, right? Seeing the whites of someone's eyes while you teach them and you have a relationship with them is, is very meaningful for me. And I think my students have always said that they get a lot out of that. So the in-person ones, they start on a Friday evening. We do some introductions. We start talking about what does it mean to have a house in general? All this talk about insulation, thermal mass, solar orientation that we kind of talked a little bit today. I really emphasize and teach that to people so they understand how a home works. So then we can make it tiny. Then we jump into tiny homes on the Saturday, uh, teach them all about legalities and trailers and, and layouts and design. Um, and I really help people like, give them a custom design process. I've got a resource where they cut and slide out around all the bits and pieces of, their, of, a, of a tiny house. And they don't have to worry about all the to scale because it's already done to scale for them. Uh, they do that in groups and that's kind of fun. Um, and I'll also feature some of the pro builders that I get students discounts in that exercise. So I'll give them pictures of a house and say, oh, well, here's this, you know, mint tiny house. Here's this teacup tiny house. Here's this zero square tiny house. Here's this um, uh, rewild tiny house. These are all professional companies in Canada. And I'm actually making more connections with pro builders in the U.S. right now. Um, where I can get them $500 to $1,000 off of. Just because I asked. I was like, hey, my students are more informed and they're easy to work with. Can you give them a discount? And so far, all the pro builders have had nothing to say but um, praise for taking on my clients and, and students because they already know what they want. They're able to actually talk like level to level with these, these pro builders. And then the pro builder does all the work. <laughs> so they have offered my students anywhere between $500 to $1,000 off uh, for one of their models. So that's the Saturday morning and goes into the afternoon. Then we get into legalities, oh no, sorry, the utilities and legalities conversation even deeper. Because obviously we just finished talking about design. How do you plug in all the guts of the house now? And then on, uh, on Sunday, we wrap up that previous content, whatever we didn't finish, and we go into construction. And we just explain the whole steps of construction. I give the students a tour of, of my house, the steps all the way through how I did it. And then we go back into each of the steps of construction and uh, they actually get a, you know, see the other choices they could have done other than what I did. I, again, I don't want people to build my house. My house was specific for me. Why well, my needs, my priorities and my values. I want other people to make their choices based on, on who they are. And then that most, mostly wraps up the course. <laughs> the last thing also that we get to do uh, on, on Sunday is uh, in the afternoon, we actually lay out tiny house floor plans on the ground to scale. So we could walk through six different tiny homes usually in that short period of time. And they can see what a, you know, eight and a half feels like versus a 10 and a half wide. What does a 16 foot long tiny house, very small, <laughs> feel like versus a 40? You know, it's really cool to see a variety on the ground and walk through them and have to build it. Usually with tape was how we do it. But I often, if we have props nearby, students will have a lot of fun 
uh, doing a, a prop uh, building and then they'll, they'll give, a, give us all a tour. I've seen a lot of funny tours from students. So I guess what I'm saying here is the in-person workshop has got a little extra content on the community side, the extra energy they get from each other, community building and these two exercises. And the online course, you get a little more content. Um, and I, I, what I've done is I actually built myself a filming studio. This last six months during COVID, I bought all the gear, I bought a, a green screen, got the filming operations done, and I green screen myself into my presentations. And so you're basically getting a lot of the same con same experience. You're still getting a lot of that same energy, but you're not getting the, say, the same community side. Uh, but you can watch, rewatch those videos over and over again as you, uh, you start your tiny house project. Nice. Well, they both sound, sound great. And um, hopefully COVID will allow you to make a wider swath through the States. I hope if you come through Vermont, it would be great to meet you when you're, when you're up in the Northeast. 100% man. I'll totally do that. Um, one thing that I like to ask all my guests is what are two or three books or resources that have inspired you that you want to pass along to our listeners? And it could really be anything, but I'd love some recommendations in the permaculture, gardening, edible landscapes in those kind of yeah. areas. For sure. Absolutely. So um, there's a few books I'd recommend. And it all depends on the listener, what kind of reading they like, of course. One book that I would say I'd recommend just for a brain switch, just to get your head thinking. It's a very easy read. Is a book called Ishmael. And I actually, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a review on this book I read somewhere saying, I now judge books by whether I read them before Ishmael or after Ishmael. It's a good one. And I thought that, I know, that was a good review and a good book. Basically, it's an ape teaching humans, where did humans go wrong? How do we get the inside perspective from outside our own heads at how to live on earth? And it's just a fascinating view of, of history um, and dialogue between an ape and a man. And um, the other two books that follow it are also good. It's the same teacher, same lessons, but just different student. So the lessons change. You know what I mean? So the second book is called um, The Story of B, and he's teaching a priest brings in religion, like, oh my God, usually you keep a six foot pole, don't, don't touch religion, but super fascinating to talk about religion uh, into that conversation. And then the third book, uh, I'd actually say is my favorite, but only because I read the other two first. Um, and that's called My Ishmael. And that one's, um, he, the ape is teaching a 16 year old girl. So he doesn't have to decondition her the same way he did the previous two students, because she hasn't entered society the same way. Her viewpoints are slightly different. So all three of those are great reads uh, as an introductory start for a bit of a brain shift. They're a dialogue narrative kind of things, so super easy to read. Um, once you get past that, that kind of stuff, you're looking at something more technical. I would say that uh, one good book that's really digestible is Gaia's Garden. Um, and that one's a, a very permaculture, uh, it's a gardening book with a heavy emphasis on permaculture. Um, after that, I mean, there's so many technical books now on permaculture, and I find they're usually pretty hard to digest unless you've taken a course. Uh, the course is really important because you're just rewiring your brain in a very intensive way. It's hard to sit down and read for eight hours a day. You know, we're trying to change the way you think and you don't do that in 40 minute sessions of, you know, taking something words on off a page. Uh, when you live it, you see it, you do it, you're talking it, you're hearing it, you're living it with other people, you're eating it. You know, that's what a, an intensive course is is definitely more about. And I highly recommend if you want to get into this, go do a two-week permaculture course. Uh, it's 72 hours long usually. 
I'm actually teaching one right now, a version of it at uh, Nate, which is one of the polytechnic schools here in Edmonton. Um, the course is called the Sustainable Home and Property. Uh, and I wish I'd done this podcast earlier because the course is already running. You can't sign up after the point, but that, we'll probably do that one again. Um, what I would recommend to people though is, is I'm, I've really been branching out since doing this tiny house course online and going North America. I'm starting to get more skill sets of people around me uh, to help do this quicker, faster, better, because I don't need to do it all. I don't need to be a filmer. I don't need to be an editor. I don't need to be a marketer. I don't need to be a teacher. It's really nice to connect with others and get this out there quicker. And so if people want to follow my journey more on that as it comes out, uh, they can just go to my, my personal website, which is just kentonzerbin.com, jump on the newsletter. And that's my more personal more personal one of like tiny homes, permaculture, and just living kind of all in one. And uh, so if you want to hear about some upcoming courses, I'm going to be doing more in-person ones on either side of Canada. I'd love to bring it to the States as well. Um, but it's just it's a process of growth. So if you want to assist on me uh, with, uh, with that growth process, or you'd like to be a part of it, jump on the newsletter, shoot me an email and talk. Awesome. Well, Kenton Zerbin, thank you so much for your time today. This was really just an exciting, I just felt energized hearing you talk and you're clearly a very skilled teacher. You like, you speak in paragraph form and I mean that in the, in the highest of compliments, like you're, you're just really good at, at kind of presenting your thoughts in an organized manner. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Then it's been a pleasure. And honestly, the community is so small, so it's really nice to actually uh, bump shoulders with you. And I look forward to meeting you in person and uh, by all means, let's keep chatting as well. Thank you so much to Kenton Zerbin for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including links to Kenton's website and photos of his amazing tiny house at thetinyhouse.net slash 132. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 132. Thank you so much to our sponsor today, Precision Temp. Don't forget to check out precisiontemp.com and use the coupon code THLP for $100 off and free shipping. All right, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.